Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. This month, on the 60th anniversary of General Douglas MacArthur's victory at Inchon, we take a look at the events leading up to the invasion. In the early days of the Korean War, as United Nations and South Korean forces struggled to hold off North Korean forces, Inchon turned the tide of the war and placed MacArthur in the company of some of the greatest generals in history. Even historians whose works are relatively unfriendly to MacArthur openly acknowledge Inchon as a brilliant, daring gamble. As David Halberstam explains, Inchon was MacArthur at his best. Audacious, original, unpredictable, thinking outside the conventional mode, and very lucky. Words like lucky and gamble are frequently used in discussions of Inchon. That is because Inchon was a risky move, and in fact, The United States Navy and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were completely against MacArthur's plan to land at Inchon from the start. Today we are going to look at how MacArthur developed and ultimately sold this plan to its critics. In some form or another, Japan had occupied Korea since its victory in the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-1895. During World War II, Korea was essential to the Japanese war effort because it yielded raw materials, food, and labor that Japan so desperately needed. In 1943, at the Cairo Conference, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist China agreed that Korea should gain its independence after the war. Despite this promise, at the Yalta Conference in 1945, the Allies decided to divide Korea into North and South mainly to appease the Soviet Union's desire for buffer regions, to shield it from states that were not communist. With the surrender of Japan in September of 1945, the 38th parallel became the line that bisected the Korean peninsula between North and South. The Soviet Union occupied North Korea until 1948, and U.S. forces occupied South Korea until 1949. Predictably, With backing from its communist allies, the Soviet Union and communist China, North Korea established a communist government. As a result, the 38th parallel was increasingly seen as a political boundary between communist North Korea and the Democratic Republic of Korea in the South. The leaders of North and South Korea both supported a nationalistic goal of reunification. Reunification was relatively impossible, however, because each leader wanted his own political ideology to dominate a unified Korea. With compromise virtually impossible, tensions between the two sides steadily increased. Violence frequently erupted in the form of border raids, skirmishes, and guerrilla insurgency. In hindsight, it seems obvious that a war was about to start. At the time, however, most of the world was focusing on the Soviet Union as a nuclear power and expecting that if any war broke out, it would be between Communist China and Chiang Kai-shek's Republic of China, based in Formosa, 
or as we refer to it today, Taiwan. The Korean War began in earnest on June 25, 1950, when North Korea invaded South Korea. That same day, the UN Security Council voted unanimously to condemn the invasion. The Soviet Union, a member of the Security Council with veto power and an ally of North Korea, missed the vote because it was protesting the fact that the Republic of China, not the Communist People's Republic of China, was represented on the Council. On June 27th, the Security Council passed a resolution recommending that member nations render military aid to South Korea. President Harry S. Truman responded by ordering U.S. forces to assist South Korea. MacArthur, who was at this time still involved in the occupation of Japan, was ordered to send aid to South Korea. American occupation troops in Japan were quickly sent, but were relatively unprepared for the conflict. Nevertheless, 8th Army units that reached South Korea in early July were instrumental in preventing the North Koreans from taking over the entire peninsula. Together, American and South Korean forces maintained a tenuous toehold in the southern part of the peninsula in an area called the Pusan Perimeter. On July 8, 1950, MacArthur was named Commander-in-Chief of the multinational UN force sent to aid the South. Almost immediately, even as MacArthur was still putting forces in South Korea to bolster the Pusan Perimeter, he was already planning a decisive solution to the conflict that would involve an amphibious invasion. MacArthur envisioned that such an invasion would allow him to attack the North Korean forces from behind. Two factors in particular led MacArthur to adopt this plan. The first was that he believed that the North Koreans had overextended their supply lines and would probably be incapable of resisting a surprise attack far from their front lines. The second was that he had to expand the battlefield. Ultimately, MacArthur understood that if the battlefield was confined to Pusan, he could not win the war, and his objective was to win the war. Expanding the field of operations was an idea that meshed well with his general philosophy of war, which had formed when he fought during World War I. In his mind, frontal assaults always had the potential to degenerate into meat grinders that would bleed his forces through one hopeless charge after another. As a rule, MacArthur was a commander who believed that good commanders do not turn in high casualty lists. By expanding the battlefield with an attack on the rear of the North Korean forces, MacArthur hoped to surprise his enemy while avoiding the devastating casualties of a frontal assault. MacArthur ultimately decided on Incheon as the ideal location for such an attack to begin. The port city for the South Korean capital, Incheon was 20 miles west of Seoul, it was also located 150 miles northwest of Pusan, on the west coast of the Korean Peninsula. Essentially, Incheon was well behind North Korean lines. MacArthur envisioned landing the 10th Corps at Incheon, surprising the North Koreans, forcing them to turn back to face him, and then battering them between the landing force and the 8th Army. In making this decision, MacArthur opted for the element of surprise rather than going with a safer, perhaps more predictable impulse to reinforce and relieve the Pusan perimeter. By choosing to land at Incheon, MacArthur trusted that the beleaguered 8th Army would hold and then be able to turn into a hammer that would crush the North Korean forces against the anvil of the 10th Corps at Incheon. 
Technically, all amphibious landings have inherent risks. MacArthur believed that the potential long-term benefits of a successful landing at Incheon outweighed any potential disaster. Few agreed with this belief. Undaunted, MacArthur went to work planning and gathering support for his plan. According to David Halberstam, the Navy planners believed that Incheon had the look of a place created by some genius who hated the Navy. Lieutenant Commander Arlie Capps, a member of the planning team, recalled that planners drew up a list of every natural and geographic handicap, and Incheon had all of them. There were no beaches to speak of, only sea walls and piers. Currents around Incheon were fast and tricky, and there was the problem of tides. If the amphibious invasion was not perfectly coordinated with the tides, the landing force would end up 1,000 to 4,500 yards from land and would then be forced to trudge ashore anywhere from half a mile to 2.5 miles through mud described as solidifying chocolate sludge. In addition, Incheon was guarded by an island garrison that was nestled in the middle of the harbor. To the planners, the only thing not wrong with Incheon was the fact that the harbor had not been mined. Considering the overwhelming physical disadvantages of Incheon, this meager advantage did nothing to tip the scales in favor of MacArthur's plan. For MacArthur, however, Incheon's obvious disadvantages only made it a more appealing sight. In his treatise on war, Sun Tzu laid down a very simple tenet. Attack where they are unprepared, go forth where they will not expect it. In choosing Incheon, MacArthur was choosing the element of surprise, as he had often done throughout his career. During World War II, through his strategy of bypassing large concentrations of Japanese forces, he had consistently attacked the Japanese where they least expected it, isolating and strangling their positions of strength. Incheon, therefore, was a resurrection of this successful island-hopping strategy of World War II. Because of the difficulties of Incheon, little if any support existed for MacArthur's plan. The Navy and the Joint Chiefs were completely appalled by the plan. Nevertheless, MacArthur went about building a coalition of support, cajoling and at times using the force of his personality to force planners and commanders alike to buy into his vision. MacArthur had been actively courting support as early as July 10th, when he met with Lieutenant General Lemuel Shepard, the Marine commander in the Pacific. After the military drawdown at the end of World War II, the Marine Corps was in danger of becoming a victim of budget cuts. Aware that the Marine Corps was vulnerable and in need of a job, MacArthur proposed a solution to this problem and a solution to his own need for support for Incheon. He explained his vision for Incheon to Shepard, and following that, Shepard suggested that MacArthur request a Marine division for the landing. Nothing could have pleased MacArthur more, and at the end of the meeting, Shepard even promised to have one division ready for Incheon by September 1st. Despite this victory, major opposition to MacArthur's plan remained, and he knew that without the support of the Joint Chiefs and the Navy, there would be no invasion. MacArthur confronted this block of opposition during a meeting on August 23, 1950, when he met with Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Forrest Sherman and Army Chief of Staff General Joe Collins. At this meeting, the persona, oratory talents, and mystique that MacArthur had carefully crafted during decades of leadership came into play. 
This meeting would be the performance of MacArthur's life, but it would not be spontaneous. When it came to planning Inchon, access to MacArthur was controlled and limited, but this was all part of MacArthur's strategy. MacArthur refused to argue his case personally or to articulate any doubts until he was prepared, decisive, and personally convinced of the merits of his proposal. When he walked into the meeting on the 23rd, he was confident and prepared. He would talk for 45 minutes without notes. He knew his audience, he knew which members to target, and he knew how to excite and challenge them. MacArthur told those assembled that Inchon was a 5,000 to 1 gamble, but that the very reason why Inchon should never be chosen was the exact reason to choose it. He told them that he would be like British General James Wolfe, during the Battle of Quebec in 1759. General Wolfe attempted a risky amphibious landing, and by doing so, surprised and defeated the French general, the Marquise de Montcalm, who had thought such a landing impossible. Using this example, MacArthur told his audience, like Montcalm, the North Koreans would regard Inchon as impossible. Like Wolfe, I could take them by surprise. When it came to the role of the Navy, he explained that he might have more faith in the Navy than the Navy had in itself. He spoke of the Navy's courage and of his admiration and affection for the service that had rescued him from Corregidor during the difficult years of the war in the Pacific. He mentioned the Navy's role in his World War II island-hopping strategy, and in closing he challenged the Navy brass. Appealing to their pride, MacArthur asked them that if in the sunset of his career he would be let down by the Navy. Convinced or caught up in the moment, at one point during the meeting, Admiral Sherman explained that he wouldn't hesitate to take a ship to Inchon. At this point, MacArthur knew he had won, and told Sherman that he had spoken like a true Farragut, a reference to Admiral David Farragut, a celebrated U.S. naval commander of the Civil War. Rear Admiral James Doyle, the amphibious force commander at Inchon, later remarked, that if MacArthur had gone on stage, you would never have heard of the famous actor John Barrymore. Once removed from the magnetism of MacArthur's personality, however, Admiral Sherman and General Collins began to have doubts about the invasion. Despite these doubts, on the 28th of August, the Joint Chiefs informed MacArthur that they had conditionally approved the landings at Inchon. MacArthur had succeeded. On August 30th, he issued an operations order for Inchon. Still nervous, however, the Joint Chiefs continued to send recommendations for an alternative landing site. Replying to the Joint Chiefs, MacArthur informed them that the preparations for the invasion were underway, and that those involved were confident that the invasion would succeed. On September 8th, the Joint Chiefs sent MacArthur a short message, authorizing him to proceed. At the end of the summer of 1950, the North Korean forces were under incredible pressure to bring their operations to a successful conclusion. Their successful drive into South Korea had severely overtaxed their primitive supply train. With winter fast approaching, and as food and clothing became increasingly scarce, the North Korean army looked to force an end to the fighting by organizing a final massive assault on the Pusan perimeter. This assault began on September 1st, and in the first couple of days, severely threatened the integrity of multiple sections of the Pusan perimeter. In the wake of this assault, MacArthur was convinced that it was the perfect time to strike, because most of the enemy's combat power was piled up near Pusan. 
On September 9th, he received final authorization to proceed with the landings, and from September 10th to September 11th, the flotilla carrying the landing force departed Japan for Incheon. Despite the threat presented by two typhoons, the entire force kept to the invasion timetable. The invasion began on September 15th, and went as MacArthur had envisioned. Outnumbered six to one and relatively unprepared, the North Korean forces were incapable of halting the landings. As MacArthur predicted, the invasion saved countless American lives, and for a time, completely altered the momentum of the Korean War. The invasion was so successful that UN forces drove the North Koreans out of South Korea and would eventually follow them into North Korea in the hope of unifying a democratic Korea. Exploring the topic of MacArthur's persuasiveness when it came to Incheon, in Warrior as Wordsmith, Bernard K. Duffy and Ronald H. Carpenter write that in a military context, the name of a place or battle comes to represent an argument. Thus, in this distillation, Valley Forge epitomizes sacrifice, Waterloo total defeat, Pearl Harbor sneak attack and treachery, Dunkirk determination in the face of disaster, Maginot Line outmoded military planning, and Tarawa represents high casualties. Duffy and Carpenter argue that by using the Battle of Quebec as the core of his argument, MacArthur convinced his critics that success by surprise was just that simple, and that any disadvantages were advantages. Today, Inchon itself has become the code word for a successful, innovative game-changer. In the end, the Korean War would present MacArthur with his greatest triumph, but also with an incredibly bitter end to his career. Future podcasts will look into the other battles of the Korean War, as well as the MacArthur-Truman controversy. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov. Oh!